This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver. While our mayoral candidates are bickering about guns and housing, lawmakers at the Statehouse have been hard at work and the debates are heating up. So producer Paul Caroli and I are digging into a rare bust up of a filibuster, Governor Polis's big new housing proposal, and a story you might want to hear before voting on the Park Hill Golf Course. Today is Tuesday, March 28th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Bree. So we have a lot of news to catch up on. We sure do. A lot of stories. But before we get there, you have something else you want to talk about that's related to one of the one of our state's favorite favorite topics, pastimes, and tourism drivers, beer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. You remember uh, last year when Coors announced that they were revamping their brewery tour? Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I finally got a chance to go do it this weekend. Okay. Um, I do not recommend doing it. It is not good. Oh. I don't know what they revamped, but it's all still very old fashioned. Um, but I did. What do you wait? What do you mean by old fashioned? I mean, I love old fashioned. So, um, just, I I guess not old fashioned as much as boring, literally old, like it's worn down. It's there's, it's not (laughs) a lot new. There's very sun faded banners showing pictures of, you know, white guys in black and white and, and stuff like oh. that. It's not, there's not a lot of razzmatazz. It's just hasn't, it's a little sun faded, hasn't been touched up. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm not sure what they actually changed. I did learn two interesting facts that I've been eager to share. I'm ready. You know, the beer that they make, Coors Banquet, their flagship beer. You ever wonder why they call it Banquet? No. It's funny that you bring this up though, because I, I've honestly just kind of ignored that it's called that because no one ever refers to it as such. Yeah. It's just course. Just course. But it's right there on the label. It says banquet. Right. And it's like, what does that mean? What does banquet have to do with this beer? Turns out it dates back to Colorado's mining history. Coors was founded 1873. At the time in Golden, their main clientele were miners. Uh, so at the end of every week, miners would get together Friday night, have a big dinner, a banquet, <sighs> and Adolf Coors first made his mark on the community by providing beer for these miners' banquets. So it was banquet beer, specifically. That just like makes me sad for a time in the past when we actually just got together with people and shared a meal. Like we didn't all just go separately to restaurants and only talk to the people at our table. <laughs> like I love this idea of a banquet every end of every week yeah but yeah okay but so there was a beer for the banquet a banquet beer yeah it was kind of funny the um the tour guide was like this is when the miners got together to celebrate not dying this week i know i was gonna say mining notoriously an extremely dangerous hazardous and deadly job that is still done today um so fun fact number two is that coors is you know it's this huge brewing global mega corporation now but uh, it got that way because it was one of the few breweries to survive prohibition which they did 
by relying on a, a ceramics company that they happen to own, which they've now spun off and is called Coors Tech. They do like industrial ceramics. Um, and they also started making malted milk. They were the main supplier for the Mars Candy Company during Prohibition. Oh, yeah. That's the only time I've ever heard the reference to malted milk is either candy or a chocolate malt. And I've never questioned malt. It's kind of like nougat. What is it? Yeah, I actually don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Paul, can you give me one second? I swear to God, I have a piece of ceramics that says course. Hold on. <laughs> I totally do. It's a ramekin. Uh, and it's made by Coors, but then it says China. <laughs> so it's it's not like it's not like a this isn't like an heirloom or like a piece of a set. It's literally like a restaurant ramekin. Interesting. That I got when my old roommate closed her restaurant and our garage was full of restaurant wear. Um, so they still some subsidiary of them probably still makes ceramics to the, this day. I don't know if that is directly still related to the Coors, but... Yeah, I don't know now. I always wondered. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, that must be what that's from. That's cool. Taste the high country. Climb up to Coors. So we have some exciting restaurant news to get to. Yes. Bree, this is... Uh, well, do you want to break the news here on the show for us? Yeah, well, it was actually the the story was actually broken through the Denver Post. Uh, writer Lily O'Neill. I saw this link floating around all weekend. I mean, people were stoked. It was on my Instagram. It was everywhere, and the information, the news, uh, Domo is reopening. So, if you were a fan of this, uh, what's it's known as country style Japanese food, the owner Gaku Homa had closed the restaurant about four months ago permanent. He had said permanently. It had been sporadically open throughout the pandemic. And initially what sort of spurred this, these like sporadic closures was someone had made a 40 second TikTok video mm-hmm. of uh, what it's like to, because Domo is an immersive experience. Let's be realistic. I mean, it's a gorgeous, it's this, this, I can't, it's hard to explain. It's this dark wood restaurant. All the tables are made of wood. All the stools are made of wood. And then you go outside into this, unbelievable garden that he tends with his um i think with some of his aikido students so imagining seeing this on tiktok for the first time it it made the place go nuts there was like a line around the block this was during social distancing it seemed to feel very stressful and i understand this for the restaurant itself because it's a very small operation you know what i mean it's not a corporate restaurant so so like yeah and like the peacefulness of it is such a key aspect of it i can see how too much love would be uh, overwhelming yeah it was very disruptive to sort of the harmonious nature of how it feels to go to this restaurant which is really a special experience but he Um, says he's reopening he says he's reopening what happened i i think it, it sounds like he had some downtime You know, he's also a really big humanitarian, um, Hmm. Gaku, that owns it. So he runs the Aikido studio next door, which is a like a form of martial arts. But he also travels all around the world and periodically through his work since he opened and probably before. But he opened uh, he opened Domo in 1996. He always takes time during the year to go work at orphanage and other orphanages in other parts of the country. He does a lot of stuff around feeding communities. And it sounds like he kind of got to go do that for a little bit and wanted to come back and. I, I think he it feels like he kind of understood like the community really here in Denver really loves this restaurant. So it's coming back. He hasn't said when exactly. And it's not going to be the full menu, hmm. but he is going to be serving some of his favorites, his infamous curry. 
Um, and then the gardens will be opened. He also said that uh, the gardens need a lot of tending to. I guess a lot of yeah. the an interesting thing that I learned was like a lot of leaves fell into the bottom of the koi pond and like pulling them out is a very arduous and and careful process. Hmm. So so just look for look for Domo to be reopened in the next couple of months. And I would also just say try to be patient and um try to extend that that patience and that chill attitude and, and gratitude of Gaku in yourself when you go there. So you're not just because I remember reading some really awful stories of people like kind of being very pushy yeah. after the TikTok thing and wanting to get in and and not wanting to wait in line and like you just can't you just can't do that at this restaurant. This restaurant is really a peaceful place. So I'm looking forward to it. Um I mean this is kind of it's a little bit of a dream that we get some of our favorite restaurants back because we lost so many during the pandemic. I mean obviously we're on Casa Bonita Watch 2023 mm-hmm. but I I would not have expected to be on Domo Watch, and I I just can't wait. Yeah, I, it's I, amazing. It did not. I, it was not even a, a glimmer of hope in my mind that this would happen, and it, it is really exciting. Um, missing this place has only made me appreciate it more, and the chance to go back is uh, it's going to be fun. I also have yeah. to say I, I really appreciate the irony of of TikTok almost killing this restaurant, but now it turns out that Domo might outlive TikTok. <laughs> Thanks to the efforts of our our national lawmakers, I did not talking about, think a, about a that ban. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I love that. I mean, I have to say that the TikTok situation with Domo really made me a curmudgeon, and that I was like, "Oh, you're going to ruin a beautiful place? Like, you're really going to do that? You're going to mm-hmm. go in there with your bossy attitude and your I don't want to wait in line and try to go to <laughs> Domo? Good for Gaku to be like, bye." Yeah. I can close my doors whenever I want. This is my space and I want to serve the world. So see you later. But I'm really glad that he also understands that um, this place is just, it just occupies a really special place in a lot of people's hearts in Denver. And um, it's part of the old West side. You know what I mean? It's kind of, yeah. it's in La Alma Lincoln park. It's on a strip that used to be pretty industrial for the most part. Oh, and that, I, I guess I should address that issue too, is there's been conversations around rezoning most of that block and there was concerns that Domo would be gone. And Gaku said that there are negotiations in process, but he said it's probably not happening for a few years. So everybody just chill and enjoy the fact that we can go back to his restaurant. Well, we got tons of news to talk about today. We got to move on. What's next, Bree? Well, we're going to check in on the legislatures because some really interesting stuff has happened actually over the weekend, wildly enough, and um, some stuff that Polis was doing last week that has potential to have really big implications on Colorado's future when it comes to building things. But before we get there, I want to talk about some gun bills because it's sort of a direct follow-up to our Monday show Mm -hmm. where I talked to uh, Gracie and Clara Taub, the East High School students who are part of Students Demand Action here. And um, they were following the four bills that we've talked about that were in the legislature around gun violence. Mm -hmm. And um, on Sunday night, the Colorado legislature tentatively passed um, two bills. And Paul, you might be wondering why this happened on a, on a Sunday. I, I am. Okay. I am wondering. Yeah. Normally this is like end of session stuff that they would be working this hard, but here we are. It's still the middle. Right. We're right. Right smack in the middle. And um, the Colorado GOP had been filibustering since Friday, oh. um, which is where a lawmakers on the floor and they have the opportunity to speak and they can speak technically for as long as they want. So they can run a session out every day. 
And this kills a lot of bills, basically. But it's also just this tactic that just like it happens when nobody can compromise. And um, the reason that two of these bills are, are moving forward is because Democrats enacted a rarely used tactic that's known as House Rule 14, which limits debate to an hour per bill and then requires a simple majority to pass it on. And so that's what happened. And Democrats moved on these two bills, the ERPO expansion law. And that's the red flag law, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's the red flag law. And then the other one was um, the ability to sue manufacturers and sellers of guns and expanding that and sort of taking rights away from these entities that have typically been sort of protected by Colorado law. And so Democratic Representative Javier Mabry, we've had him on the show to talk about rent control. He was one of the lawmakers that had been working on these bills. And I guess it sounds like House Rule 14 was just like the last resort. They had been debating and debating and going back and forth and trying really hard. And Republicans are really digging their heels in on these gun these gun violence prevention laws. Like they don't want any of them passed. And I, I just found it particularly interesting because students have been rallying at the Capitol. They have been talking to these lawmakers. They have been addressing their concerns and saying, this is what we're going through. And Republicans don't want to budge. I wonder about that, you know, because it's a lot of students showing up at the Capitol, hundreds, thousands on different days. But for a Republican lawmaker who doesn't agree with this particular approach to stopping gun violence, would would students showing up at my office make me change my mind? I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about that. I don't I wonder how I wonder how they think about that. I mean, my pushback would be these are your constituents in a few years. They can't vote yet. But your laws impact their lives. And when I talked to Gracie and Clara at East, it really hit home for me when we talked about the extreme risk protection order expansion. So We talked about that bill, which is the red flag law, and this expansion of the bill would mean educators, teachers, and healthcare professionals who have worked with someone in the last six months have the ability to report someone as a threat to themselves or others and have their gun taken away by law enforcement. That would be the expansion of this bill. And Gracie and Clara said to me, this might have prevented our our classmate from shooting two people and eventually shooting himself. So I, I don't know if that would be considered a stretch, but I can see where they're making those connections, that this could be something that could have been a preventative measure. So that's where I struggle, Paul, with, sure, I, I'm sure it's overwhelming to have a bunch of people barge into your office and tell you what to do. But I feel like these kids didn't have any other choice. Like they didn't have it. What else were they going to do? Write a bunch of letters? Obviously, that doesn't work. Well, the Democrats are obviously listening because they took this extreme measure to stop the debate and get these bills moving. Yeah. But um, but Brie, we put out a call last week to hear what our listeners, DPS students, DPS parents, teachers, think about these recent shootings, what should be done. We're talking about guns in schools. We're talking about cops going back to schools. What, what, are, uh, what are our listeners saying? Well, I'm going to read a couple of texts that we got. Um, we got some from educators, which was a really helpful perspective as well that's different from the students but also as someone that's more on the ground than I think a lot of us that are watching from the outside. So we'll share those and then we will be back after a quick break with more goings on in the legislature. I'm a DPS teacher. Both of my children graduated from DPS. And as you said, as a society, we are nibbling around the edges. So three things. Number one, according to NRA logic, the safest place in the world must be a war zone because everyone has guns. Number two, 
I don't feel safe in my home because I have a gun. I feel safe in my home because my neighbors don't want to break in. And number three, we should be asking why a student at East High School thought he needed to have a gun with him. I can make up so many different stories, but we need to know what the story is. And we got this text from a longtime listener of the show. I'm in my 29th year teaching at East and was with my friends who were shot shortly before it happened the other day. I appreciated the attempt to capture some of the nuance of the SRO issue, but what is often overlooked is that when you remove SROs, we still have so many things that fall under mandatory reporting that still exist. Without SROs, we have to wait for cops to show up, sometimes three to four hours, and when they do show up, you don't know who's coming and some police are much harder to deal with than others. My wife is a counselor at East, and this adds so much stress and extra time to her already overwhelming job. This episode is brought to you by Pine Melon, the farmer's market delivered. Pine Melon is a next generation grocery delivery app that partners with over 200 farmers, ranchers, and producers in Colorado to help make fresh, locally sourced foods available to the Denver community at fair prices. Get high quality meats, eggs, and dairy from small local farms, fresh baked breads from local bakeries, and more, as well as all of your favorite pantry staples. Best part is, Pine Melon offers same-day delivery to Denver and soon Boulder within a two-hour window, no subscription necessary. Save time in your busy schedule and get fresh and healthy groceries delivered right to your door. Join the movement and support local today. Use promo code CityCastDenver for $75 off your first delivery at PineMelon.com. That's PineMelon.com. Okay, we're back. We're still talking about what's going on in the legislature, um, but this time it involves Governor Polis and this massive housing bill. Paul, explain it. <laughs> well, I, I can do my best. Um, I think the story starts at the beginning of the session. Remember, we had uh, CPR reporter Andy Kenny, a big Polis watcher like me on the show to talk about housing because that's that's the governor's big priority this year. And now we finally know a little bit about what form this is actually going to take. Uh, so it was released last Wednesday. They're calling it the More Housing Now Plan. And basically it is a massive land use reform covering the whole state. Um, it's very complicated. It affects cities in different ways. But for tier one cities like Denver, this would require us to rezone to allow uh, the construction of something called middle housing, which they define as townhomes and multiplexes with up to six units, as well as accessory dwelling units on lots in all residential neighborhoods. So instead of going now, it's like neighborhood by neighborhood is is how zoning tends to go or even even property yeah. by property. Mm -hmm. So this would make it much easier to build more. Yes, it's all about creating density in our uh, urban cores, in our biggest cities, especially Denver. Cool. Um, I think one piece of this that's really interesting, as uh, the reporting from uh, Andy and, and his colleagues at CPR pointed out, this bill doesn't include any transit funding, which you know, for people who think like Polis does about this densification as a way of bringing down housing prices, Yimbies, mm -hmm. this type of person, mm -hmm. The other piece of this is transit because you can't really have density without new transit options because otherwise all these people who are living in these big condos and all these townhomes are just going to be leaving their cars on the street and it's not actually going to be solving for the climate problems, for the water constraints that we that we have. 
So transit is, is not in this bill. Polis says that he's going to look at additional options we might have to support transit, but I don't know. I'm not optimistic for this. I think, I think Andy was right when he was on our show and he said that uh, housing reform is cheap, whereas infrastructure for transit is very expensive. <laughs> and I, agree with, I agree with Andy 100%. I'm just laughing because we have, this is just like that problem of all problems that we keep having a problem with, which is the joke has been, you know what I mean? B- building these light rail lines to where? When are we going to get that train yeah. to Boulder? When are we going to get these, you know, just better infrastructure in the cities, in, in like in the cities, like you're saying. And I, it is surprising to me that this doesn't include that because they kind of, like you're saying, go hand in hand. Yeah. So there are pieces of this, like uh, these tier one cities would have to allow or, and encourage denser development around rail stations and transit lines and commercial corridors. So there is that transit oriented development piece, but it's just, he's not thinking about transportation in cities. Um, I have heard Polis talk about that train to Boulder and like the front range passenger rail, but he just doesn't seem that interested in touching RTD or or inner city transportation right now at all. That's my sense. Of Nobody least. wants to touch RTD, including RTD itself. <laughs> it's too hard. It's too big and complicated. Yeah, but it's like the key to this whole thing. I don't know. At any rate. I, yeah, I agree. So what's interesting about this again is this is a, he's doing some statewide work mm-hmm. on these zoning conversations, which are generally hyper local. How has this gone over with uh, municipalities across the state? I think the response is what you would expect. Uh, the Denver Post had an article this morning where they talked to some municipal leaders across the state and they don't like it. Uh, they feel like uh, their powers have been uh, overruled, which is exactly what's happening. So I don't blame them for not liking it. But one quote, uh, an indicative quote from the mayor of Colorado Springs, John Southers, um, and in Colorado Springs, they just did their own land use reform. He says, I just resent it. Most large cities have been going through processes very similar to what Colorado Springs has done, but apparently we're too stupid to understand the need for affordable housing and only the state understands what we need to do. <laughs> so that's some choice provincialism from yeah. Mayor Southers. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, sir, uh, Colorado Springs is not an island, so you've you've got to understand that we at some point need to get on the same page when we all are exactly. part of the same state on how we're going to address this problem that we've been talking about for over a decade now. So Exactly. And that was that was along the lines of uh, the response from your council person Jamie Torres representing about. District 3 in Denver. She said, you know where it has my attention, she's talking about Polis's proposal, is in really forcing the conversation in communities that have not wanted to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my district is right next to Lakewood, which has put limits on growth, and that puts pressure on everything else, on, on everyone else. Denver can't be the only ones trying to build affordability, and we're probably not the only ones, but we need it at scale, is what she said. Yeah, I, I mean, I deeply respect uh, Councilwoman Torres's approach here, and, and she's got a tough job, which is when your district butts up against another municipality, it's just often a conversation ender. You don't, you know, whether it's transit or housing options, um, it's a real struggle. So I'm I'm glad that she's being vocal about it because we ha- we've got to change we've got to change something because we're still not there with housing. Yeah. So, well, it'll be interesting to see how this conversation develops at the Capitol. Speaking of conversations developing, um, (laughs) we 
we are still talking about everyone's favorite topic that no one actually wants to discuss in person, which is the <laughs> only online. This is an only online conversation. No, uh, the Park Hill Golf Course. And again, we're all going to be or have voted on this, um, mm-hmm. which is 2-0. But Paul, what are you, you've, you've been having some conversations with folks about this whole situation. And what are we going to talk about? What What's the new angle here with uh, the Park Hill Golf Course debate? I, I guess I should probably catch new people up. If somehow they have not <laughs> You've been lucky enough to not discuss been this. following the the talk about what to do about the defunct 155 acre Park Hill golf course that is just sitting there, open land. I actually went for a walk there this weekend. Big, windy. It kind of operates as a park right now. It's not a golf course. Um, but the situation is there's this development company called Westside. Uh, they bought the property for $24 million in 2019. And ever since, they've been trying to convince the city to lift the conservation easement, which is this arcane tool that the city has in place uh, to prevent other uses of this land except for golf course. So what did you what did you learn lately? Well, last week on the show, we talked about this lawsuit that has been facing the developers around the use of the clubhouse. They had uh, a deal with an organization called Sisters of Color, um, who the, now are suing Westside over un, or who had to pay for renovations to the, to the clubhouse. And um, it got really nasty, this lawsuit. It's not over yet. It hasn't gone to trial or anything, but the Sisters of Color group leaked some documents related to the trial because they wanted voters to know this is how Westside does business because they have mm-hmm. clearly suffered a, a lack of trust with their former partners. So we talked about this and came to the question of how do we trust the developers? On, on How do any of us trust the developers on this vote? Uh, because they made big promises about what to do with this land, you know, 100 acres of parkland, affordable housing, commercial development. They're saying, you know, they're going to try to bring a grocery store. They've got a lot of big talk, but how do we trust them? Mm-hmm. After I said that on the show, many people got in touch with their experiences with Westside. And I had some really productive and interesting conversations with one group in particular. And it's, and it's the signatories of the Community Benefits Agreement, which is a legally binding agreement that the developers signed with these 11 community groups um, a few months ago, right before this whole thing went before city council. And I, I just thought this was so interesting because I didn't know this group existed. I knew that there was community opposition, the Save Open Spaces group. There were a lot of people that were saying, we want this whole space to be parkland. We don't trust the developers. We don't like their plans. We don't think they're going to do what's best for the community. But at the same time, there was this other group of people who were engaging really, really closely with the developers and negotiating what's become this document, which they're really proud of. Um, Hmm. So for example, I, I talked to a man named Roger Cobb, who is a a native and resident of Northeast Park Hill. He's on the board of Northeast Park Hill Coalition. He told me he's been working on this for five years. So that was like around the time that Westside was talking about buying this land. He started thinking we need to engage with Westside to make this deal as good as possible for us, to make this work for our community. And what they explained to me was they don't really see this as a trust issue. They see this as a legal issue. That's why they pursued this community benefits agreement. So if the developers don't follow through on their plans, they can sue Westside. That's what this community development agreement is. Of course, the city could too, the mayor and the city council could. But if for some reason we elect a mayor and city council that don't want to do that, or 
they just decide they don't want to do that. This community, these community groups, they can sue the developer. And I asked them directly and, and got them on the record. A lot of them say that they fully plan to. They see this as in the tradition of social justice activism that has been successful in Park Hill for decades. They see this as the next battle for them. Interesting. I mean, I think it's helpful to hear from all sides and that maybe this is just a component, like you're saying, of a side of this argument that we haven't really heard from. Mm-hmm. So so why are they so proud of this like agreement, this 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 thing that they've taken on? Well, a lot of them are aware of the lack of trust with developers in Denver and have feel themselves personally burned by past projects that have not turned out right here. And so they're really proud of this deal because they say it's stronger. The community benefits agreement is stronger than any that the city has seen before. And what I found particularly interesting is that they said it's so strong because of the Save Open Spaces group that has been so staunchly opposed to the developers. Like the percentage of required affordable housing in the community benefits agreement would not have been as high were it not for Penfield Tate and the Save Open Spaces group being so strongly opposed to the whole idea of development. So they're using the other side as the other side of this 2-0 argument to say, look, a lot of our community is not into this idea and don't trust the developers. So we're going to go to the developers and say, all right, what can you do for us to ensure? Yeah or tentatively ensure that we get what we need for our community because a lot of folks in our community don't think that you're a good actor. We need a better deal. We need a better deal. That's what they said. Because our neighbors don't trust you. We need a better deal so we can help convince people to help vote for this. Interesting. I mean, I feel like this information is really helpful, but at the same time is just further making it more complicated. Absolutely. On how we're supposed to feel or or, uh, how we're supposed to vote. I mean, I know a lot of folks have already voted. I myself have not. Because I'm still debating some of some of this stuff, but it's really helpful to know, and I'm glad that we got to hear from folks sort of on the other other side of this that wasn't just from the developer directly. Yeah, me too. Thank you to everyone who reached out to to offer to talk about this. It was really really helpful. Um, oh, there is one more person who reached out. We got a voicemail. Maybe this would be a nice thing we could end the show on today because I thought this was a sweet story. Yes. Um, we got a voicemail from one of the sisters uh, of Loretto from the Loretto Heights campus where the West Side Investment Partners Development Company is also leading the redevelopment over there. So she wanted to share her experience of working with West Side. I'm Lydia Pena, a sister of Loretto. My neighborhood is near Loretto Heights College where I taught for 23 years and graduated from there. My perspective is that West Side Investment Partners is incorporating what they heard and learned during public meetings, which they held for at least two and a half years. I would say that if one values diversity and community, The Loretto community that is being created is a place to consider living, to consider calling home.
That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell Molson Core CEO Gavin Hattersley about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. It's no downstream beer. It's no city beer. It's Coors.